Um, but I heard from, from uh, Don and, and Jane Menendez, uh, Jane gave me a little bit of the background on the history of small groups here at the cathedral. And so all to say I'm encouraged by that because I do think that small group life is an important dimension to um, developing community, especially in churches that are large, like this one. Now, I want to just give you a little bit of, of history. Oh, and by the way, what, what Marilyn said about my um, desire to serve you, I do want to do that um, in any way that I, that I can. I mean, we'll think through some of the more, more of the details as, as the future uh, comes at us. But I do want to serve you in this way. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I, there's a, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to a group this Wednesday night to talk about Jeremiah. Um, I think I, I spoke to a group earlier about some other matters. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to do that. So if, if that is of any use to you, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Now, a little bit of, about my own background. I, um, I was on staff at a church for five years as a youth pastor, youth director, where small groups were integral to that church. I was there at a time when the church, and I'm not really, you know, get too hyped up on church growth, but I was there during the time when the church grew from 700 people to about 12 to 1,500 people. And I would say small groups were integral to that. Um, we led youth, uh, I, I led youth small groups, um, and then when my wife and I went over to, um, to Scotland, we, uh, we, we were a part of a small group there that was really the part, the beginning of something rather dynamic in our lives. Um, it was an entry for us, frankly, into the lectionary. That was something that we, we come from a free church background, so we entered into the lectionary that was new for us. Um, we entered into a kind of community with other people where we were praying for another, one another, we were seeing one another regularly, and, and there was something very rich about that, about that experience. And now I come to you from another church in town, um, Presbyterian Church, where small groups is, a, is an ingredient part of that church as well. The old line at our church, my former church was, we're not a church that has small groups, we're a church that's composed of small groups. Now, so the small group dynamic was really integral there. And so now that I'm being recorded, I'll be a little bit more chastened in what I'm going to say here. But we've had good and bad experiences. That's all, all that was run up to this, right? We've had experiences where Wednesday night would roll around and we were excited about going to small group. And we've had experiences where Wednesday night, they all happen to be on Wednesday night. Wednesday night would roll around and we were kind of like, duties kicking in right now. Um, you know, small groups can be a real blessing, and I think small groups can be a real challenge. I don't know if you felt this way or not. You're seeming to be rather pious right now, but I, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I have felt this way. And, and my wife and I have, have joked with one another multiple times that, you know, the blessing of Christian community is community. It's a real blessing. And the curse of Christian community is community, right? I mean, it's, it's being involved in other people's lives. In other words, the idea, to my mind, the idea of small groups is a rich idea. Working it out on the ground and actually being involved in it, where you get past the kind of surfacey things and now you're really involved in people's lives. And I don't know if you know this or not. I'm sure you do because you know your own life. Um, lives are kind of messy, Right? And you start to, you know, you have to press beyond a kind of surfacy, syrupy, sentimental kind of relationality to where people really start talking about things that are troubling and deep to them or, or personal matters, familial matters, child issues, life issues. And now, you know, it's not sipping tea and eating scones and having an, it's, it's, I mean, this is frontline ministry. 
So I really do believe that small groups is where frontline ministry is taking place because a lot of pastoral concerns, a lot of difficulties in people's lives really get filtered into that particular, particular area. So I wanted to talk with you with a few introductory comments, if you don't mind. Um, one of them is this. We all know, I think we all know, that there is a deep yearning and need um, for community, for involving ourselves in the lives of others who share a common faith and a common desire to live for the glory of God. Now, let me, let me rephrase that. All of us desire Christian community. I mean, this is a debate that goes back a long way. I don't really want to get bogged down with it. But what does it mean to be created in the imago dei, in the image of God? This is a long debate. Um, I do think there's something significant about the fact, and Bonhoeffer is onto this. I'm going to talk about Bonhoeffer a little bit this morning. But I think Bonhoeffer was right to at least indicate that in Genesis, where it talks about us being made in the image of God, it goes on to say male and female, he created them. In other words, being made in the image of God, part of that, ingredient to that, is the need and the basic necessity of our humanity to relate to others, to be in to be in relationships, um, not to be isolated islands who are sort of turned in on ourselves. And by the way, I'm, we're going to talk about this. That is a real challenge in the particular place that we're located in the history of the world, right? To think beyond our own individual privatized lives and to begin to think about relating to others as we turn outward into others. So we all desire, I think, somewhere community. We're fighting against uh, loneliness. And, but what is it that shapes our community? Community is, or Christian community, is a gathering together of those who share a common faith, who seek together to live lives for the glory, for the glory of God. Now I should say precisely at this point, at least in my own mind, that that understanding of Christian community, a shared faith, living together for the glory of God, is what makes small groups, Christian small groups, Christian community, different than a supper club, right? Now, I want to be careful here, because I think that stuff's great. Supper clubs, getting to know your neighbors, that kind of, that, that is a wonderful aspect of relating to other people. But what is it about Christian small groups that make them Christians over against or in differentiation from supper club? And I would say that what makes it different is particularly this, this theological character, the, the gospel character of what it means to come together as people who share a common faith and desire together to live for the glory of God. That's what separates small groups from, from supper club. And by the way, I think small groups can have a lot of supper club kind of things involved in them. And that's important. We'll, we'll see that more next week than this week. So all to say, we come together, we share a common faith, we have a common desire to live for the glory of God. In Robert Gordon's biography on John Calvin, I've been fiddling in this over Christmas, he describes Calvin's conversion this way. I want to read this to you. An intimate or comforting sense of the nearness of God. Home for the exile is not a location, but union with God. End quote. Home for the exile is not a location, but it's their union with God or their union with Christ. What is it that we share together as we come for small group, for Christian community, to mutually encourage and support one another? 
We come together because we know, we know that we have brought, been brought near to God, and in being brought near to God, that is what shapes and forms our identity. Now, I wanted to talk, have you all done this book before? Um, and this is chat time, by the way. Um, but is this, is this in the history of this place, Bonhoeffer's Life Together? This book you all know? I, I want to, I'll commend this to you, all right? Bonhoeffer's um, book, Life Together, is probably, I don't know, maybe it's um, Christian Small Group 101 in many ways. It's, it's a great exposition of what it means to live in Christian community. He's very realistic about that. Um, but he's also very theologically shaped by the gospel and what it means to do that. So I wanted to read you a few quotes from Bonhoeffer to get us going. This is all introduction, by the way. But here's, here's a few quotes from Bonhoeffer. Number one, this is from page 31 of Life Together. Because Christian community is founded solely on Jesus Christ, it is a spiritual and not a psychic, let me put this in brackets, not a human reality. In this, it differs absolutely from all other communities founded solely on Jesus Christ. Here's another quote from Bonhoeffer. Christian brotherhood, or we'll say sisterhood or personhood, however you want to say that, is not an ideal in which we must, that we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. I want to read that one one more time and talk about it for a few minutes. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. I think this is great news for you all, small group leaders. How many, are all of you small group leaders? Most of you small group leaders? Um, you know why I think this is good news? Because that should lift a burden off of your back. I don't know if you feel this burden before. I have felt it before. We need to make this thing happen, right? We need to make this Christian community thing happen, and we're going to do it by this, this, and this. Now, I don't want to take away from the disciplines or the certain kind of ingredients that make, that make for good Christian community. We'll talk about that. But the point being, Christian community is a reality, not something that you have to make happen. It is something that is real because of our union in Jesus Christ, because of the gospel. It is something that is an established reality in our lives that we are in Christian community. And when we come together in small groups, we are invited to participate in that which already is. I mean, that's actually, I think, revolutionary, at least in my own mind, in thinking about what small groups are about. We come together to provide a venue to participate in something that already is, so that we may mutually benefit to our own spiritual growth and that which we have fully and completely, one another and in communion with Jesus Christ. It's already there. You don't have to make Christian community happen. Christian community is something that is actualized by the Spirit of God because of what has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And my hunch is, for those of you who've done this long enough, you've seen that happen, right? Those moments where something happens. You know, this two or three gathers together in my name, and there I am in, the, in your midst. Something happens. You've come together. The Bible has been read. People begin to share their needs. Prayers begin to happen. And all of a sudden, you know, I, that doesn't always happen. 
But all of a sudden, you realize something's happening here that we're not manufacturing. In other words, we're not sort of working this, working the angles to make this happen. Something's happening. That something that's happening is a triune work of God, right? It's a triune work of God that by His Spirit, we are walking into what is already full and real in our communion with Jesus Christ. I wanted to do one other thing. Who's ever iPhone this is, I'm so sorry because I'm spitting all over it. Um, is that yours, Matt? I'm really sorry. I mean, I, I live in a Petri house of disease with three kids, so I'm... Clean that thing. Write it off. Write it off, yeah. One other introductory comment. Oh, yes. At least time to time. Hebrews chapter 10, which is, by the way, one of the scariest chapters in the Bible. Right, So your, your small group manifesto comes out of one of the scariest chapters in the Bible, and don't ask me about it in question time. But let me read this to you. Therefore, my friends, it's a call to persevere, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his own flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he he who has promised is faithful. Now here's the manifesto, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and to good deeds not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to read those two verses to you one more time. Maybe we can meditate on that together this week. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and to good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In this very intense chapter in Hebrews chapter 10, the apostle is calling on the people of God to persevere, to persevere to the end. And that, by the way, I don't want to sidetrack on that, but that's the shooting match in a way, isn't it? To encourage people to persevere to the end. That's not, by the way, in opposition to struggling with doubt. I was in the car yesterday. Forget all my stories come from my kids now. They'll get better as I get older, but I've got kids. Um, and, and my middle son, Jackson, from the middle row, said to me, Dad, um, I want you to know that sometimes I struggle believing in God. I just want you to know that. And uh, I said, well, you know, number one, how could you? I didn't say that. I said, I'm, 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 I'm glad you are willing to share that with me. I think that's wonderful. And I said, another thing I want you to know, too, is doubt and struggle with belief is not the opposite of faith, son. I mean, it's, it's, it's ingredient to what it means to be a follower of God, to struggle with these things. Remember John the Baptist? I told him about John the Baptist the night before. Um, I don't think I told him this, but I, I, I know that John the Baptist the night before, you know, he, he sent word to Jesus, are you really the one? I mean, here's, here's John the Baptist. Are you really the one? So I don't want to say that doubt is the opposite of faith. I mean, this is but the call to persevere to the end, to hold on to Jesus because we know that he's holding on to us is ingredient to the faith. And when we are in that, we're in that together, by the way, because we've been laid hold of by Christ. 
Why do we come together in small group? Because in the middle of that reality, knowing that the hounds of the world surround us or after us, right? That we recognize that we need, to, we need one another in this journey of faith. We need one another. And by the way, that's not always fun. Yeah, you know this. It's not always fun to be provoked, to be stimulated to love and to good deeds, recognizing that the day of the Lord is coming. It's not always a happy, fun thing. But it's something that we need because we take seriously the fact that Christ has come and, and he, will, he will come again. We just saw Les Mis. Um, who's, who's gone to see that at the movies? Um, I'm just a sucker for this stuff. You have to forgive me. I'm just a sucker. I know all the critics out there talk about the syrupy, sentimental, whatever. That's me, right? I love that stuff. And my wife and I, I mean, from scene one, you know, we're just like, oh, my goodness. You know, we're, she, I didn't cry, but she was crying. I did, too. I mean, it's just powerful, right? <laughs> but that scene, you know, where the bishop, I love that scene, the bishop, and, and, and he says, you know, today I bought your soul for God, Right? I mean, what, that's, a, that's a wonderful illustration, I think, of this stimulating one another on to love and to good deeds, to encourage one another, to challenge one another, because we recognize that everything around us is leaning against that. But we come together um, to encourage one another to love and to good deeds. Now, the bad news, all that was introduction. Okay, so let me, let me, um, let me press on here. Well, let me stop for a second. You, you, what, do you, what do you want to talk about? You want to bat, bat something around? That was like putting your mouth to a fire hydrant. Sorry about that. Um, anything you want to ask about? You, you table it? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll stop for some questions at the end. Now, our common identity. Now, I don't think there's any denying that our particular placement in the history of the Western world, and especially our identity as Americans, and I realize I'm starting to get on some thin ground here, um, challenges certain fundamental aspects of what it means to be a Christian. Assumed cultural norms that have to be challenged. Number one, I'm going to give you two of these. Number one, that the individual is the center of the universe. The turn to the subject that we see happen in modernity. And number two, and it's related to number one, I like religion my way. We all call that the dismissal of external authorities. Now, both of these are grossly general, maybe general enough to be unhelpful. But nevertheless, and in line with Bonhoeffer's earlier statements, we come together in Christian community because we share a common identity. This is where we begin to press against the individualized, the privatized, toward what we share in common that brings us together. And what is it? What is it that our differentiated selves have in common when we come together? We are the body of the redeemed. We're the collected body of the redeemed. We're the collected body of people who've been claimed by Jesus and set apart to the gospel, to use Paul's language. Now let me just go ahead and put this out on the table. This shared identity is not one facet among many others that we might have. For example, I'm a mother. I'm not. But, uh, mother, real estate agent. I'm on the PTA, and I'm a Christian. Or, I'm a husband, I'm an accountant, I'm a little league coach, a fly fisherman, and I'm a Christian. It doesn't work like that. Our Christian identity is the core by which all other facets of our being 
find their source and their goal. Our Christian identity is the core by which all of the other facets of our being find their source and their goal. I'm a Christian who's a husband and a fly fisherman. It's our Christian identity. Our churchly culture defines who we are, and it's the norm by which our life takes its cue. I mean, you realize this, right, that the gathered body of the redeemed is a subculture in a way. It's another culture within the prevailing culture around us that witnesses prophetically by faithful presence to what it means to live life under the lordship of Jesus. And we encourage one another in our small groups toward love and good deeds to live in that way, to think in that way, so that our living and our thinking and our feelings begin to get shaped by that reality. Jesus is Lord and no one else is. He's the Lord. And how does that reality then shape and press the way in which we engage one another and the way in which we, and we live? We marry in a Christian way. We raise children in a Christian way. We grieve as Christians. We, and the list goes on and on and on. That is at the core of our, our identity. That's our common, our common identity. I think this is extremely important for the life of small groups. And the tone for that, frankly, is set by small group leaders, I believe. Now, this doesn't necessitate, now let me be very careful, I want to nuance this. This doesn't necessitate a kind of forced spirituality where our language becomes overly sentimental or syrupy. In other words, to encourage this kind of living, I'm going to end every sentence with praise the Lord. I'm not encouraging that. We don't need to do that. What it does entail is the gracious leading of those who come together in your group into the reality of what already is. We come together, we eat together, we pray together, we study our Bibles together, we hear one another because we are redeemed, because we're claimed by Christ. And so all of this, laughing, eating, praying, which is all important to fellowship, is done in the presence of God. Now there are a few aspects of our common identity that I wanted to outline for you, and I'm just going to do them quickly, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you this in more detail next week. Number one, we share a common gospel. We're a community of the redeemed. We're baptized. We've been claimed by Christ and set apart as his own. We walk into the reality of our baptism. Here's question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, number one, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. We're a community that's shared by a common gospel. And by the way, people need to be reminded of that. I've heard heard the dean here, Frank Limehouse, say more than once, um, an anecdote where I guess someone said, why do you, why do you preach the gospel so much? And he gave, a, he gave Luther's reply. He said, I'll continue, you know, once you get it, then I'll move on to something else. But you know, the gospel, you know, I, I, I think I've heard, I've heard. 
You, you, you've heard this, haven't you? Um, so the language of the gospel, that language, that's our language. To, to use a technical term, that's our idiolect. That's the particular language by which we learn to talk to one another in that Christianese. Now, I, I know there's a danger here because we want to be missional and look outward, and I agree with that. We'll talk some more about that next week. But we do have a common language within the life of the church that helps for us to shape the way in which we talk about ultimate reality. I'll encourage a book on you in this regard. Um, I didn't bring it, but I think it's in our bookstore, and I've incur- I mentioned it in the dean's class once, by Todd Billings, entitled Union with Christ. It is an outstanding book, to my mind, on a, on a, on a very good and healthy understanding of, of the gospel in its totality. So we have a shared gospel. Number two, we have a common authority. We live under authority. That's the thing we have to buck, frankly, uh, within our modern world. No one likes being told what to do. I don't like it. My kids don't like it. I'm assuming you don't like it either. But we live under authority. Can I read to you Article 6 of the 39 Articles? It says... Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. I mean, this is a part of our shared identity that we live under the authority of Scripture. And, and, and by the way, that's an easy thing to say. I, 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 I phrase it this way. What's at the heart of biblical authority? When I read scripture in the communion of the faithful, both the living and the dead, and when the mind of scripture is discerned on a particular matter, I will submit to its claims even when what it says runs contrary to my basic instincts. I mean, it's the heart of biblical authority. So I'm not just talking about a privatized reading of the Bible, but in community with both the living and the dead, we come to a common mind about what the Bible is claiming on us. At the heart of biblical authority is the willingness to submit to that, even when it runs contrary to our basic instincts. Karl Barth, a great theologian of the 20th century, said, There is no authority of Jesus without the authority of the Bible. You don't have the one without the other. Even Jesus himself submitted his own ministry and person to the anterior authority of the the Old Testament canon. Even Jesus himself did that. So this is a very important matter. What do we see in 1 Timothy 3 and in Romans chapter 15? And the list goes on and on. That the scriptures are written for our instruction, for our edification. They become the means by which we understand the world, not just the lens of faith, but the retina that actually allows us to see and to make sense of the world of the world around us. Um, I wanted to read this to you because I think this is at the heart of small groups. I love these Bereans. They must have been a great, powerful small group there. Acts chapter 17. Listen to what they did. This is what you, I think, are doing in your small groups, I'm assuming. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day 
to see whether these things were so. I mean, that, I think, is another kind of manifesto for small group life and identity. What are we doing? We're examining. We're studying the Bible to see if what is being proclaimed is true. We submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible, to the authority of of the Scriptures. Number two, we have a common tradition. Now, this is a very important, I think, integral part of the history of of the Anglican Church, frankly. And that is... It, and my, my wife and I have had to sort of adjust this in our own minds, coming from the background that we come from. But the, the claim of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, which is at the heart of the Reformation, is not the same thing as saying nuda scriptura, the scripture stripped of anything else. That's not the same. Sola scriptura or prima scriptura means that the scriptures are primary. They are the authority by which everything else is judged. Everything else is judged by that. But it doesn't mean that tradition is insignificant. It's actually quite important. I've been fascinated in reading this biography on Calvin that in many ways the debate in the Reformation was number one, a debate over the Bible, and number two, a debate on who's reading the fathers the best. In other words, you saw this kind of back and forth between Calvin and others where they would say, you know, okay, this is what the Bible says, but also Augustine said that. Augustine said it here, here, and here. And this is what Chrysostom said, or Cyril of Alexandria, and the list goes on. They thought it important to show how their own readings were part and parcel with with the tradition. So tradition's important. Yerosof Pelican defined tradition as the living faith of the dead, whereas traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. That's Pelican's term. Oh, that's quite helpful. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, whereas traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. We don't just do tradition because that's the way it's always been done. That's, that's, that's not a healthy, biblical, theological reaction to tradition. We do tradition because we believe, as my own dean, Timothy George, has often said, that my grandma is not the first person to hear of Jesus. Right? We believe that the Holy Spirit has been operative throughout the history of the church, helping those to understand his word. And it doesn't mean that they always heard it well. It can be corrected by scripture. But it does mean that God was operative and we need to be listening to that. Um, Gerald Bray, who's who's teaching, I'm surprised you're all here. I'd I'd be hearing Gerald right now. Um, But Gerald Bray, who's teaching in the the other class, um, has a great article on early church uh, exegesis or patristic readings of the Bible. And uh, one of the footnotes that is a classic Gerald Brave, you know the guy, he's, he's, he broke the mold, um, where he said, in the early church, they knew about the pyramids. And they would have assumed that they couldn't pull that off in their day. Or, or to kind of move on, what happened in modernity is the turn to the subject, to the, to the whole world revolving around the autonomous eye, meant that the the interior authority of the past was no longer presumed. It was immediately called into question. Whereas I think a good posture, frankly, is a kind of hospitality, um, a, a kind of openness, a submission to the fact that God has been operative in tradition and that people like Augustine, people like Aquinas, and Luther, and Calvin, and Cranmer, and the list goes on, have something to continue to teach the church, and we would do well to listen to them. 
Um, so I, I, I think this is quite important, frankly. And within the Anglican communion, the Anglican tradition, especially those who identify themselves with the English Reformation itself, this is a very important part of, of what it means to be, to be Christian, to be Catholic. I believe in one holy apostolic and Catholic church. Now, quickly, and then I'm going to stop for questions. Um, when Thomas Cramer designed uh, the Book of Common Prayer and was at the head of the beginning of the Church of England under Henry VIII, he established three formularies or three constitutional documents by which the Church of England was designed. The Book of Common Prayer, the Ordinal, which is the directions for ordination of priests and bishops, and then the 39 Articles, which were originally 45 and then whittled down. But what, what does one observe here? One observes that within the history of the Anglican tradition, or at least within Cranmer, you had a carefully crafted formulary that was meant to safeguard devotion, discipline or order, and doctrine. Devotion, how we worship, discipline, how we're ordered, the ordinals, and doctrine, the 39 articles. Um, I think the 39 articles, frankly, have probably fallen on the hardest times in the life of this communion. But I want to encourage them to you. Because in some sense, I was thinking about this even in worship this morning, the way in which we come together and worship, right, around the Book of Common Prayer, the way we worship together is infused theologically by what's at stake in the 39 Articles. And it, by the way, if it's not that kind of reformational doctrine that's infusing the way in which we think about how we build the meat on what we're doing in our worship, then it will be something else. Something else will come in and will provide that meat. But I think within a certain kind of reformational instinct, we, we recognize that the 39 Articles provide the meat and the fabric by which we understand our common worship to come, to come together. Um, I'm a 39 Articles guy, all right? And it's worth recognizing that the Book of Common Prayer, and, and Hal points this out in a book I'm going to commend to you in a second, remains broad and Catholic enough to exclude no confessing Christian from its worshiping pattern. But the 39 articles are the doctrinal meat which fuels the doxology and the worship of the Book of Common Prayer. Oh, our time is gone. Um, what, what's the point of all that? The point of all this is that helps shape what it means for your identity as a common group that comes together in small group. You share a common gospel. You're under the authority of the scriptures as you're seeking to submit yourself to what God is claiming because we believe that it's the best. We believe it's best. And number three, we come together with a common tradition that will help shape the way in which we read the Bible. Heiko Obermann, very good uh, uh, history of the historian of the Reformation, distinguishes between tradition one and tradition two. Tradition one are those great Catholic creeds that we confess namely the nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, and, and Chalcedon, which affirms that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. Right? We affirm that. That's tradition one. That's what it means to be orthodox, to confess Christianity. But tradition two are those particular distinctives that give shape to our expression of that belief as, as Protestants. Both are important. And I think those are rich resources for small groups as you come together and you study the Bible um, to think about you know, what, it, what the common identity that we have together as we, as we worship together. All right, let me stop. And I wanted to read to you something from Rusty Reno, but I'll, but I'll stop here. No, let me stop. Any, any quick questions?
bat around? I don't know if you can tackle this this week. Maybe this is for next week. But um, I think the, the hitching point would be, um, for many groups, is this idea of the authority of Scripture and the willingness to submit to it because it's so countercultural. And there's so much um, culturally that uh, is just normal. And it's, um, it's what you're surrounded by in the workplace. And I think that um, it's, it, it has to be an intentional habit that's created of constantly submitting to that. Yeah. And part of this is, and this is the part I wanted to kind of conclude with, part, part of this is, frankly, the fact that we live, um, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to be unpastoral, but we live in a therapeutic society, right? Um, and that's, that's not all bad. I want to be very careful. It's not all bad. But we tend to live in a therapeutic society where people's initial kind of reactions are affirmed, where instead of being chastened and, ref- and reformed. Um, th- this is what I wanted to read you from Reno, and then I'll let you go. All right. This is Rusty Reno's book. No, oh, I didn't bring it. Um, Out of the Ruins, or In the Ruins. He says, I'm convinced that no matter how liberal or conservative their personal piety, most Episcopalian priests feel this way. They conceive of their ministry as shepherding individuals toward richer, fuller spiritual lives, and they are reluctant to gainsay anyone's self-reported spiritual discomforts and dissatisfactions. Well, I'm going to really anger some of you here now. This is Reno. If someone is fixated on masculine pronouns, the priest has little room to maneuver. He can get out of some, of the, some feminist theology book he was assigned in seminary and try to preach some sensitive sermons. He can form a worship committee and explore ways to enrich the current worship of the congregation. He can point to his support of NOW in order to establish his bona fides. He cannot, however... Tell the unhappy parishioner that the received liturgical language of the church is not subject to change. He cannot tell that parishioner that he or she must work toward spiritual maturity that recognizes that the language of prayer is doxological, not political. The therapeutic ideal makes this impossible. The priest must affirm and empower. He cannot rebuke and reform. That's a strong quote. And if you've ever been around Reno, he's like this. Um, but I think the point is a strong one. You know, in other words, we need to be challenged. We need our fundamental presuppositions to be shaped. And how are they shaped? They're shaped by, they're shaped by the scriptures. All right, we'll talk more next week. You bring questions. I'm ha- and by the way, I'm happy to, de- I'm off now. I'm happy to debate. I mean, you can disagree, get angry. But, you know, this is a different kind of environment. So you bring your questions next week and, um, and let's bat these around a little bit. Okay? Thank you.